Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll go through chapter 2, verse 1 today. Let's pray. Uh, Our Lord, we recognize that we are indeed weak and feeble creatures, but you are from everlasting. You're an unmoving rock. You determine the boundaries of the habitations of the nations. You raise up and you tear down kings and kingdoms. We confess that we don't seek to know you with the fervency that we ought, nor do we believe you as we ought. But by your mercy and grace, reveal yourself to us this morning through your word and by the Spirit, so that we would be more and more able to believe what you have told us. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. So I'll just remind you that Habakkuk is really the quest of a finite man to wrap his head around a finite God, and in that way it is a relatable book to us. So this is a conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and God. And so in the first week what we saw was in verses 1 through 4 that Habakkuk cried out to God for justice in Judah, that Judah had become wicked and he saw that God. it seemed to him that God was not acting. So he helped us to better understand really how to ask hard questions of God. We saw that he probed God for answers and his zeal was for the law of God. It wasn't for himself or for his own comfort, but that the law of God not be trampled. Then last week we saw God's response to Habakkuk in which he taught us that while our perception of the world uh, may have a degree of accuracy, we can't see the bigger picture that God can see, that he is sovereignly ruling everything. He showed Habakkuk that he was raising up an empire, the Babylonian empire, to bring swift judgment on Judah, and that he was fulfilling specific prophecies, prophecies we saw uh, and promises we saw from Deuteronomy chapter 28. So God's picture, though it may be tough for us to swallow, is always a better picture than the one that we can create. So this week in Habakkuk, he responds to God. He um, responds to the response that God gave him, and he responds with both an affirmation of God's actions, but still more uh, confusion, more perplexity. He is still confused. So with that in mind, let's stand and read God's word. I will read aloud. If you would read with me silently. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12. Uh, through chapter 2, verse 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Mark chapter 9, we have the story of the man bringing his son to Jesus for uh, because his son has a, a demon, and Jesus asks him about his faith, and, and he admits, he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Uh, that's a familiar sentiment in my own heart. And, and really, it's unnerving at times. It, it almost can feel like, I know I have some faith, but is it enough? That's a wrong-headed way of thinking, and we'll see that this morning. The truth is that the strongest among us has weak faith. Calvin says that our faith is never perfect. It follows, therefore, that we are partly unbelievers. That's why the image that Jesus uses for humanity's high watermark of faith is a mustard seed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so the question that, that we come to today is then how does a, a, a very human faith express itself toward the divine creator? This passage is a wonderful expression of faith, and you might you might think I'm crazy for saying it's a wonderful expression of faith, because at first reading it may seem like an expression of doubt. But as far as human faith is concerned, I see Habakkuk as having very strong faith. As O'Palma Robertson says, it's not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that torments Habakkuk. And so let's look together at Habakkuk's example for us, and I want to identify three expressions of Habakkuk's faith, which will in turn help us in our unbelief. First of those expressions is that uh, faith believes God. That that's the most basic level definition of faith. Faith is believing God, not believing in God. The demons believe in God, but believing God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him. As righteousness. So faith begins with God speaking and our believing Him. Habakkuk's faith finds expression here in a declaration of God's covenant faithfulness based on God's character and God's history with His people. So he begins in verse 12 Are you from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. That question, are you not from everlasting, is a rhetorical question, obviously, and the answer is yes, he's from everlasting. God, uh, before a single molecule was made, there was God. Before the problems of a particular prophet named Habakkuk living in a tiny conflicted corner of a little blue marble in the whole space of universe were there, God was there. I think sometimes we feel as though our problem, a particular problem we have is perhaps the first one to ever confound God. 
Nothing will ever stump God. No problem will confound him. No hurdle will trip him up. No obstacle will cause him to change course. He is from everlasting, and therefore his love is from everlasting. Notice the names that Habakkuk uses here. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Capital L-O-R-D. O Yahweh, my God. Unlike the Chaldeans, whose own strength is their God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is Habakkuk's personal God. He says, my God. He is the God who said to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. Habakkuk also calls him my Holy One. He claims God is his personal Holy One because God is the God set apart unto Israel, his people. That title, Holy One, is most prevalent in the book of Isaiah, and it's most often used there as the Holy One of Israel. It's actually kind of a slogan in um, Isaiah. It's used 29 times in the book. And um, it's helpful to make this, this distinction here, that God is not the God of the nations. Now, I didn't say he's not God over the nations. He does, he determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, but the nations do not claim the one true God as my God, my Holy One. Only God's people can make that claim. So Habakkuk's faith rests on his God, Yahweh, because God's dealing with God's people have extended into everlasting, from eternity past. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read God speaking to Israel The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God set his love on Israel. He placed his love on Israel, and God's love proceeds with his character from everlasting. We share in that same confidence, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself. So Habakkuk's faith has a a solid footing because he knows God, because he knows God and his history and God's character. Because God is the everlasting Yahweh, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel, then then he can declare this declaration, we shall not die. We saw the the horrific description of the Chaldeans coming down and swooping in like an eagle to destroy Judah, and yet he can say, we shall not die. Some will die. Many will die. When the Chaldeans come, many will die. People will die who who have faith in God. The, the, The few righteous ones even will die and be carried off in exile. So what does he mean, we will not die? If you flip over to Deuteronomy, once again, last week we read some of those covenant curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And that there in that passage, God says that he would raise up a nation to come in and swoop in and crush Israel if they would not keep the covenant with God in the land that he was giving him. And we read those 
descriptions last week. Um, but there's more to the story than, than just the, the covenant blessings and curses. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 through 8, if you turn over there. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 8. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So, there's so many wonderful promises in that passage that could be a whole other uh, sermon series that we can see that apply in the, in the New Testament context. But the point I just want to drive home here is that Habakkuk believes God. Habakkuk knows that though they be smitten by the judgment that God is raising up by the Chaldeans, though they be carried off into exile, he knows from Scripture that God will bring them back, that he will restore them. That same God has raised up the Chaldeans for judgment. He says in verse 13, You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk had cried out in verses 1 through 4 for justice, for correction in Judah. And now he affirms and declares that by raising up the Chaldeans, God is bringing to bear precisely what he asked for, judgment and rebuke and reproof. So once again, Habakkuk believes God. He's heard what God has had to say, and he believes him. That is faith. In the unbelieving corners of our hearts, we're, we're slow to believe God. Habakkuk's faith here should help our unbelief because he's not the picture of perfect faith, but the object of his faith is as true for him as it was, as it is for us. God remains that everlasting rock. He continues to faithfully exercise a, a, a punctual justice. And he continues to keep covenant with his people. And in fact, if anything, we have more cause than Habakkuk to believe God because we have a a fuller revelation of God's word to look upon. All of his promises find their fullest expression in the new covenant, in Christ, in the word made flesh. And in his cross and in the empty tomb, sin and death suffered an ultimate defeat. And we are uh, afflicted by many doubts, but those doubts find resolution at the cross. 
if a family member seems too far gone to be saved, if a, if a particular sin is afflicting us, we can't be rid of it. If someone we love has died or is dying or if we ourselves are dying, answers to all these uh, terrible heartaches of life that inflict all of us and perplex all of us find an answer at the cross. So the exhortation in all of this is really a simple but lifelong challenge, and that is believe God. Habakkuk's faith rests on God who is. And yet, because he knows who his God is, he, he sees some incongruencies between uh, what he knows to be true of God and what he sees in the world. And so he must now, in, in, in an attempt to be honest, make an inquiry into those perceived inconsistencies. So that leads to our next expression of faith that Habakkuk demonstrates for us, and that is that faith asks questions when perplexed. Faith asks questions when perplexed. Uh, We can't over-exaggerate the holiness of God, nor can we really express the gravity of our sin against His holiness. Uh, that, That gap between our sin and God's holiness is an infinite gap that cannot be traversed. Habakkuk says in verse 12 that God is the Holy One. And in verse 13 he says, You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And of course in his omniscience God sees everything. He sees wickedness. But he cannot look at it and allow it to abide. He cannot tolerate evil. It's like Kelly when she sees a spider in the corner of the room. It, it must die. It cannot live. There is no neutrality. <laughs> Psalm 5.4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It's not simply that he dislikes the spider in the corner of the room. He, he cannot abide. He cannot exist with evil. It is an impossibility that God would allow evil to be perpetrated against him or his creation without corresponding perfect justice. And this brings about Habakkuk's question, his his why. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Why do you look at traitors? Uh, This word traitors means wicked or some translations use uh, the word treacherous. But I like the word traitors. The, the root word here means a garment or a covering originally. And it's almost like, you know, a robe covers a man. And in that same way, deceit covers uh, unsavory notions or intentions. Brown Driver and Briggs defines the word this way. It says that it's to act or deal treacherously, faithlessly, or deceitfully in the marriage relation, in matters of property or right, in covenants in word, and in general conduct. So it's it's general dishonesty and faithlessness. And this is a great depiction of the unredeemed sinner. Paul puts it this way, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So man is made to be in communion with God, to live in obedience and reliance on God, 
but we are, are quick to turn our affections into worship, as Michael was just pointing out an offering, to worship his creation. The Chaldeans were these kind of traitors. He says, therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He said in verse 11 that their own might was their God. Now from Habakkuk's perspective, from what he can see, God is almost like a a king up in a high window just casually looking down on, on anarchists destroying the city, just watching, idly doing nothing. And he wants to know, why will you not act? Even worse, these traitors destroy those who are still loyal to the king, the righteous ones. He says in verse 13, the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. It's God's people who are at the receiving end of the attacks of godly, and so he wants to How is this just? How does this accord with your perfect holiness? This does not make sense to me. He continues with his concerns. He says, if God is perfect in holiness, why does it seem that men who are made in the image of God, almost by God's hand, are made to be a sport for the Chaldeans? Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So, men who were made in the image of God, who were given dominion over the fish of the sea and the crawling things on the earth, are now made as fish of the sea to be harvested by a cruel and gluttonous nation. They're made like worms of the ground who crawl but don't really have any ruler to protect them, and they're just picked up by the robins and taken off to the nest. He says in verse 15, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. This is the Chaldeans. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. The Babylonians did the same thing that the Assyrians did. They would take people from their homeland, conquered people, and ripped them out and put them somewhere else, exiled them. And they quite literally took hooks and put them in their lower lip and strung them in lines to carry them off to different lands. So this imagery of of a hook is quite literal. There are also capturing of the nations with a dragnet. And worst of all this is that the Chaldeans are giddy about it. They're excited about it. He, he rejoices and is glad. I was uh, perusing a fishing forum the other day, and apparently in the reservoir in Ridgeway, smallmouth bass are taking over um, the lake and they don't want that so they've opened up kind of unlimited bag limits and this one guy posted pictures of his fish and he was also kind of bragging about the fact that he took fish and threw them on the bank for the the herons to eat and of course this caused controversy some people that's wasteful the same thing seems to be saying Habakkuk seems to be saying the same thing in verse 17 He says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? How how long will this injustice and violence and indulgence of wicked men continue? O God, who cannot look at wrong? It's a strong statement. It's a strong question. Again, though, I think Robertson's right. It's not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that torments Habakkuk. 
We've, we've discussed previously his questions arrive, arise not from a desire to accuse God, but from a desire to better understand God. A faith that believes God finds expression in, in seeking to better understand God. It's like the man who said, help my unbelief, fill in the gaps for me, God. David asked the same questions. Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Those words are familiar, aren't they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They come, ultimately, find their fulfillment in the cross. Again, Robertson has a great great quote here. The question, how can the favorite of God suffer such devastations, reaches its apex of perplexity in the why of Christ from the cross. And it is precisely because God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong that Jesus was forsaken at the cross. Every sin must have its due reward if God is to be just. And the question we should rightly ask is not, is you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, why do you look at me? The answer, of course, is that Jesus drank that full foaming cup of God's wrath for every sin of every one of his people. And justice has been rightly served on him rather than us. So it is right to seek out answers to our perplexities. It is truly an expression of faith as we seek to grow in belief of God. Habakkuk does not resort to, to the resources of human wisdom. Instead, he will look for an answer from the Lord because only the revelation of the Lord can answer his perplexities. Which brings us to our final expression of faith here, which is that faith waits on the Lord for answers. Faith waits on the Lord for answers. I think many times we're afraid to say, Lord, help my unbelief, as if he were somehow going to smite us for having too weak a faith. Or in fear, or perhaps even in the name of good intentions of of reverence, we may avoid laying our perplexities at the feet of God. But God would have us in a posture of honesty and humility to admit our weaknesses and bring our confusion before him. Because he and he alone can provide a good answer. Habakkuk is not afraid to bring questions before God. And they are not an expression of his giving up on the sovereignty of God. In fact, they're just the opposite. They're an expression of eager expectation that God will give him an answer that accords with his character. We see this again here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I will, what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we notice his urgency to hear from God, to, to continue this dialogue. I know I don't have the urgency of Habakkuk either to seek God with my perplexities or to hear his answers. But for him, 
God's revelation seems to be the, the very lifeblood of his existence. He's not going to take his next step until God responds to him. He will climb to the tallest point of the city towers and, and look day or night for the sign of, of the courier of God on the horizon. He, he needs that message. Again, we have an amazing privilege in our day that the people of ancient Judah were dependent upon the prophets like Habakkuk to receive communication from God. Um, We depend on them too, and the apostles, but it's all written down for us. We have the complete revelation of God. Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. So when we have these perplexities which confound our faith, we can take them and we can plumb the depths of God's word. It sounds so basic and obviously Christian, but there's a reason for that. We can plumb the depths of God's words with our confusion. So may we learn to do so with the eagerness of Habakkuk as a watchman, eagerly waiting for that communication from God. So in conclusion here, faith is... Uh, faith is in the inexhaustible, infinite God of the universe. And so by nature, it's going to come with perplexities, with confusion. We're finite. He's infinite. But the question is, will we humbly turn to him and say, help my unbelief? Will we turn and express confidence that, that we do in fact believe him, that even in some small measure, we do believe God? And will we seek him fervently with those questions which plague our our finite minds because he's the infinite God of the universe? And will we wait with that active eagerness that Habakkuk shows us? And finally, will we have such a confident assurance of these things hoped for that, that though we don't yet see all the things brought into subjection to humanity, we will see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death now crowned with glory and honor. Amen.